Get ready to rumble. Chilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Nathan Lewis, leading authority on monetary policy, a Discovery Institute fellow and co-author of the new book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. And Nathan Lewis, welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Hey, Rob. Good to be here. You know, I think a picture is worth a thousand words or maybe a hundred trillion words. And in the very beginning of your book, there is a picture, and I've never seen this before, of a $100 trillion note from Zimbabwe. That's worthy of a little bit of discussion because I could barely fathom that they would have currency with that high of a denomination. Americans should learn about hyperinflation. Of course, they had hyperinflation in Zimbabwe because almost everyone else in the world understands this. Uh, all of Latin America, everything south of Texas had hyperinflation in the 1980s. All of Eastern Europe had hyperinflation in the 1990s. China's had hyperinflation in the late 40s. Uh, Japan had hyperinflation in the late 40s. Germany had a couple rounds of hyperinflation in the 20th century. It's very common, and you better you better learn something about it. So either you can prevent it from happening, or if it does happen, you know what's happening and how to stop it. We went for so long, and I've had this discussion on the air over many years, wondering when it was going to happen, because they just kept increasing the money supply, uh, creating money out of nothing, and yet nothing bad seemed to happen. Why has it taken so long for this to catch up with America? Uh, that's a good question, and even among the sort of expert class, that there's a lot of a lot of head scratching about that. Um, my take, my interpretation is basically what happened in 2008 is banks were running with very extremely low cash holdings, basically to increase profitability because the cash didn't make any money. And then that that led direct, directly into the crisis of 2008. They didn't have any cash to fulfill their obligations. Out of that crisis, they, um, they developed a new system where they had basically, you know, very high cash requirements and they had to make it They had to regulate it because otherwise there'd be competition, you know, race to the bottom, just as they had before to have the lowest cash possible. So these are bank reserves at, at the federal reserve is what I mean when I say cash, uh, a form of base money. And so they, they decided on that and they, and they phased it in through 2019 and this cash didn't exist. It had to be created. Although it was not really done consciously in an organized fashion, basically what happened over that decade is central banks had to create the money that banks required themselves to hold. Just as, you know, if you, if you required every, every person on this, you know, every citizen to have thousand dollars in $20 bills in case of a you know, rain day fund, you have to make those bills, right? <laughs> I mean, they have to exist, right? You can put them in a shoebox and you're bad or whatever. Uh, and much the same happened for banks. Even in, even into the um, end of 2019, there was a bit of a crisis because banks, they fully phased in the requirements for, for 2019 and they didn't have the 
literally was not enough cash in the world. And so that created a shortage in, into 2020. Uh, and then when COVID hit, uh, it, central banks essentially filled that hole, which absorbed a lot of that cash. Hopefully I'm not getting too, too complicated here, but, but the, the state, as we came out of COVID, central banks had you know, produced this tremendous amount of money. As we came out of COVID into 2021, banks were fully topped up. They have regulatory requirements. They publish them. They say, yep, we meet all requirements, right? The tanks were all full of money <laughs> at that point. During that whole process, the currencies did decline in value. I mean, we went from you know, $900 per ounce of gold, let's say, and let's say 2000, you know, 1800 in 2021. So the, it lo- appears that the dollar during this process of printing money, the dollar did lose about 50% of its value. So it wasn't completely harmless, but, but it was completely out of proportion to the uh, amount of money that was created during that time. And one of the reasons we want to come out with this book uh, at this time is to say, okay, <laughs> you know, according to our interpretation, uh, that's it. Your free pass is over. That game is done, right? If you try that again, you're going to try to run a big deficit and have the central bank pay for it. Or, you know, you just have this knee jerk reaction of whenever the economy turns down to just vomit money over the landscape. Uh, that's not going to work. And the outcome could be very nasty. So a lot of people are misinformed about what inflation is. And you have a very instructive part in the beginning of the book talking about three things that people think inflation is versus what it really is. So let's go into that. There is, if the term inflation, economists have been trying to give it an exact definition for, for decades. Ludwig von Mises used to try to do this in the fifties. And unfortunately the problem was that no one really cared what Ludwig von Mises said. <laughs> so instead of acting like the grammar police, we have to, we kind of accepted that the, the term inflation is out there in popular speech and it doesn't really have an exact meaning. It has something to do with higher prices. The question really becomes diagnosing a certain situation there's basically, we, we decided to categorize into two things, which one is basically kind of supply demand issue. And, and in economics terms, this is aggregate supply and aggregate demand, it's mm-hmm. a Keynesian framework. Uh, and it's, you know, it's basically supply and demand. There's a shortage of something, just as we have today, a shortage of you know, new cars because the car factories are shut down. Uh, prices go up, right? That's pretty easy to understand. Mm-hmm. We have a very tight labor market and, and wages, especially for the lower end are, are going up. And you could have a dozen examples of this sort, right? There's been bird flu and now chicken prices are rising. Right. Supply and demand type stuff. And, and we, and we kind of understand this. We, we, we get it, right? Uh, and then you have monetary stuff. And this all central bank has nothing to do with supply and demand. It's just central bank managing the currency, mismanaging as it were. And it's really easy to understand is, you know, the central banks do this, that, the other. And it has some kind of effect on the value of the currency. We have floating fiat currencies. The values go up and down. Well, when they go down and they stay down, what happens? Well, it takes more currency to buy things. And this is a process that takes months and years to flow through. If the value of the currency, you know, value of the dollar falls by 50%, then over a period of months and years, you expect it to take twice as many dollars to buy things. Barrel oil, you know, mm-hmm. first tends to be commodities. Later, it tends to be everything else. And what we have, and, and these two things are not terribly hard to understand, but what we tend to have is, is people kind of focus on one or the other. It's all supply and demand, right? That's what happened in the 70s. They thought there was an oil shortage and all this stuff. Or it's all a central bank, right? Milton Friedman, inflation is everywhere, monetary phenomena. Well, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes there really are, you know, supply demand issues. As I kind of joke, you know, half the people are wrong all the time or 
now, now we actually have both together, which is very unusual. We haven't really had these kind of supply demand issues to this scale since maybe World War II or wartime conditions. Usually they pass kind of quickly, but they seem to be getting worse. So since we have both together, I say, you know, every, usually half the people are always wrong, mm. uh, but now everybody's half wrong because <laughs> they only appreciate one, but not the other. You know, there's been debate over the years, and I don't hear it so much anymore, but I do remember hearing it in decades past about having a strong dollar versus a weak dollar. And I never understood why somebody would want a weak dollar. It just doesn't sound good. But is that relevant to the debate on inflation? Yes. Um, so, you know, remember our message in the, in the book, which is if you look at, you know, forget about the supply and demand stuff that exists, but we're going to focus on the monetary stuff. You just think of inflation, the monetary inflation, as a decline in the value of the currency and the consequences that arise from that. A weak dollar, which basically means a dollar that's declining in value, would cause inflation, right? No one ever says, they get in front of a podium and say, you know what, we want a weak dollar. You would never say that, right? But what they say is instead is, you know, we need easy federal, you know, easy money, federal reserve policies to deal with unemployment. They say that all the time, mm -hmm. or support the stock market, or a dozen rationalizations. We, we we know them all, and the result of that is the we you know is a weakening currency. Uh, in the 1970s, they used to call that accommodation. Mm -hmm. You know, we, well, we don't want to cause a recession with, so we will accommodate you know inflation, and you get a weak dollar. The strong dollar policy of the of, you know the 80s, 90s, with people saying, yeah, we're not going to do that. You know, we're going to try to maintain a reliable, stable currency value, and approximately during those decades, they did. Let's go to how the government calculates inflation, because I understand they leave a lot of things out and they use some other tricks yeah. to make the numbers seem lower. I don't trust the numbers as they come out, but how did they do it and how should they do it? I really um, de-emphasize the CPI numbers. A lot of economists, they're like, it's hard, it's hard to explain the mentality as if it's something you could go out and scientifically measure. And it had some kind of, you know, vast significance. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to downplay their significance. What's really important is, is maintaining stable monetary value, not whether prices go up and down. But over the time, uh, particularly during, let's say, the 2000, well, in truth, the entire period of floating fiat currency since 1971, but, mm -hmm. but particularly during the 2000 to 2010 decade, you know, the value of the currency, the value of the dollar was declining substantially. And I, th I think it was actually done on purpose. I think they're kind of like trying to pull goofy economic policy on us. But they, there, were, there were continual adjustments to the way they calculated the CPI. And you could argue about whether it's justified or not. But what we know, one thing we know for certain is every time they adjusted it over and over and over again, the result was the CPI came out lower than it would have if they didn't adjust it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the CPI is not really like a fixed basket of prices. Of course, it's hard. You know, unfortunately, things in the economy, except for the most basic commodities, aren't fixed. So you, you can't even have a fixed basket. But it's just kind of this thing that evolves from time to time and, and it comes out with, you know, it, it's heavily managed. I was a little surprised, actually, at the very high CPI numbers recently because I figured they would just, you know, make up something and have whatever number they wanted. <laughs> Does it make you think that it's worse, though, that, that, that as bad as they're stating that it's even worse than that? That's a good question. Yes, probably a little worse. I, I mean, the, the, the typical family is probably seeing 
price increases or you know the effects on their finances and so forth a little more than the you know official eight percent. So maybe it's ten percent or twelve percent or something. And we and we have seen some you know, very big increases in and uh, in, especially in kind of food and energy type stuff. There has been there has been a substantial decline in currency value uh, over the past let's say three years, twenty nineteen to the present. Uh, probably about, which would probably account for about a 50% upward move in prices. That's very significant. And and what I would think is that that leads ultimately to a a dramatically lower standard of living for Americans, or are we just making it up with credit? Uh, Exactly. Yes. And, And that's one of our messages in the book is that if you just think about it as a declining currency value, you know, what has happened in the 50 years since we adopted floating fiat currencies in 1971. Well, uh, we estimate, I estimate that the value of dollars probably about one fiftieth today of what it was worth during the Kennedy administration. One fiftieth. And and, uh, actually, you know, and the dollar is still a major international currency because actually all the other countries that have been even worse than that. Uh, Like I said, much of the world even had hyperinflation in the eighties, nineties. If you just think about it, you know, if, if the currency that you get paid in, if your wages are paid in, goes down that much, 98% mm-hmm. over the course of 50 years, you have to, you know, it's like you're on a treadmill. You have to get raises just to keep steady, right? Yeah. And you're, you're depreciating the value of your wages. You're depreciating the value of all kinds of assets, like, you know, fixed income assets and all kinds of assets. Basically, it makes you poorer. Basically, it makes you poorer. And this is really easy to see in any other poorly managed Latin American country. Mexican pesos value has gone from about three to the dollar to about 20 to the dollar from 1990 to the present. And not surprisingly, Mexico is no better off today than it was three years ago, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, other countries, China has gotten wealthy during that period. Mexico hasn't gotten wealthy at all. And that has something to do with it. And so, yeah, we, I, I, I say to people, you know, it's really easy to understand when, when you depreciate the value of your currency over the long term, as we have done in our floating fiat currency system, it's real hard to get ahead. You tend to be a, a pattern of stagnation. And if it gets really bad, if you have bad inflation or even hyperinflation then it's you know you're not just even stagnant you're kind of like you know crashing into the into the earth the shilling show unleashed podcast with nathan lewis continues in just a moment online at shillingshow.com Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and, in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets, and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Show. Shilling Show Unleashed.
The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast, we continue with Nathan Lewis. The book is Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. So I want to go to gold because there should be a, a focus on that. Um, you talk a lot about yeah. that in the book. Why did President Richard Nixon take us off the gold standard? And was there some immediate benefit that he derived from doing that? That's a good question. I've, I've been talking about this change that we had in 1971, and every American should understand this. It's one of the most significant points in U.S. history, along with you know World War II and the Civil War and the stuff we all learn about. So you know, people should understand what happened at, at that time. We had been on the gold standard system, just like every other country in the world that took itself seriously, for nearly 200 years from the founding of the country up to 1971, with some lapses, but we, we uh, stuck to the principle. The basic idea was that gold was pretty stable in value. We know this. And so if you linked your currency to gold, then your currency would be pretty stable in value, right? It might go up and down a little bit, but it's going to be pretty reliable. This worked pretty well. During those times when we stuck to the gold standard system in the United States, uh, we never had an inflation problem, um, only when we left it momentarily. Also, after nearly 200 years of this stuff, 180 years, uh, in the 1960s, we had become the wealthiest country in the history of the world. It worked pretty well. Yeah. The final decade of the gold standard era in the United States was not some horrible disaster. You know, like everyone said, oh, the gold standard is a disaster. It's not working. Let's do something else. That didn't happen. Right. It was great. It was probably the best decade for the American middle class of the last century. And then so what was Richard Nixon doing? Right. It's like, well, he wasn't solving a problem. Well, he was solving a problem. He was solving his problem and not everybody else's problem. It's kind of a long story of how, you know, the, the institutional framework by which the gold standard system was maintained deteriorated during the entire post-war period. But it culminated in, in uh, the Richard Nixon's presidency. And, and basically, he had had this guy, uh, William Martin, at the Federal Reserve. He had been there since 1951. He had, he had always been a pretty good defender of, of the gold standard system, kept the dollar's value linked to gold, even when there are a lot of pressures to violate that. And he was doing that again in, in, uh, 1969. Uh, this was, and there was a recession in, in 69 and Nixon looked at that and he said, well, my buddy, my econo- economist friend, Arthur Byrne says, well, we have a recession and when to deal with the recession, we need some easy money and then I'll get reelected in 1972. So when chairman, uh, Miller's term was up in January of 1970, he replaced Miller with Burns. Burns did exactly what he was uh, wanted to, told Nixon he should do, uh, had this you know, easy money policy. It basically caused the dollar to depreciate from its gold parity you know, and basically became a floating fiat currency. And, and instead of floating, it sank, which was exactly the point. It's a weak dollar policy, essentially. And it worked. Uh, and the economy recovered. There was this kind of inflationary recovery. It's kind of this false boom in 1972. And uh, Nixon got reelected in the landslide in 1972. And then 1973, the consequences came due. And, you know, we started a decade where Americans got poorer. <laughs> That's what happens when your currency falls in value. Uh, during the 1970s, the, cur- the dollar value probably fell by not, about 90%, a 10 to 1 ratio. And, you know, we ended up with a 10 cent dollar by the 1980s. And we were much worse off as a country as a result. You know, this is interesting because there was uh, post-Nixon, uh, under Gerald Ford, 
a campaign called Win or Whip Inflation Now. And in fact, you even have a picture of one of those buttons in your book. But I think that's where a lot of people got the wrong impression. Like this is some big monster that we have to somehow tame or defeat when it was our own creation. Exactly. Yes. And that's what we want to talk, talk in the book. And I just mentioned, you know, supply demand factors and monetary factors. In the 1970s, you thought it was, it was, it was 100% monetary. It was, it was Arthur Burns at the Fed getting mixing reelected. But, you know, Nixon's a Republican. He wasn't a, he wasn't a Democrat, wasn't a leftist. Ford was a Republican, not a leftist. Mm-hmm. Both of those guys, uh, you know, Nixon also put in price controls. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible idea, right? Uh, Ford shows up, instead of fixing the, the currency problem, the Federal Reserve problem, he basically, he basically didn't know what to do. So he kind of like, you know, hemmed and hawed and, and they thought it was kind of a supply demand kind of thing. Totally ineffective. And then what was the next person, you know, Carter? Well, you know, even in 1979, after this had been going on for a decade, mm-hmm. they still couldn't figure it out. And, you know, Carter was, oh, like I said, you know, during that time, basically the, the value of the dollar went down 90% right, roughly. So it became a 10 cent dollar. Not surprisingly, the price of oil went up 10 times. Carter went on TV and said, well, let's turn down our thermostats and wear a sweater. Uh, They still couldn't figure it out. Both sides, Republicans and Democrats, have a long history of misdiagnosing the problem and not having effective solutions. Is there any nation in the world today that is basing their currency on either gold or silver? And I do seem to recall maybe four or five years ago, there was discussion in Mexico about basing the peso on silver. Uh, maybe Maybe I heard wrong, but I thought they were talking about that. But is anyone doing that? Well, there's a little bit of debate about whether Russia just recently in the last couple of weeks adopted that policy, Yes, which is an interesting idea. It's a little too early to say definitively, but um, they're kind of, I think they're kind of feeling it out a little bit. And yes, you're right. There there was an initiative in Mexico to base the Mexican peso on silver because uh, the Mexican peso used to be a silver coin made in Mexico City Mm -hmm. from the Spanish silver mines of the new world. And that Mexican silver dollar was actually a major international currency for 500 years. Mm. Uh, the U.S. dollar is based on that coin, the Mexican silver dollar. The Chinese yuan is based on that coin, the Mexican mm. silver dollar. So there's a bit of a tradition in Mexico about that about that silver coin. So that's interesting. No, um, no, there is there is no there is no gold based uh, currency, national currency in the world today. There are some cryptocurrency starting up and so forth. And there are a couple reasons for this. One is there's a lot of institutional resistance. You know, there's all the academic economists and the IMF and all these other people say, don't do that. There's talk that Muammar Gaddafi of Libya wanted to introduce a pan-African gold-based currency. Mm. And then suddenly he was no longer the leader of Libya. Mm. (laughs) 12 months later, coincided exactly with the coup in Libya. Um, so there's a fair amount of institutional resistance against it. But there's also some, some technical problems. And that is a country that unilaterally, you know, most, most countries have a lot, they're pretty, are smaller countries, right? If you're Guatemala, you have a lot of trade with the rest of the world or you're South Korea or, or somewhere else. If you were to fix your currency to gold, then the foreign exchange volatility with all the other currencies would be the same as the gold price, right? It would be, that would be it. And that would introduce quite a lot of uh, difficulty. So the basic idea of a gold standard system is you, you abandon the idea of, oh, we're going to have our domestic floating fiat currency and, and you know, have our local guy make stuff up as it goes along and affect unemployment and so forth. 
the idea is we're going to depoliticize it. We're going to have a simple rule. We're just going to make the value of the currency equal to gold, uh, this external standard of value. And that's what most countries in the world do today. They don't use gold. They use the dollar. Once again, they just take the currency. It's worth a dollar. They maintain that policy. The same basic idea. It's external standard of value. Uh, and the advantage they get from that is it becomes very easy to trade within the dollar, the dollar sphere. So over 100 countries tied to either the dollar or the euro at this time. Even though there are no gold standard currencies presently, um, the basic idea of you know forget about fiat currencies and just tie your currency to an external standard of value and you get to share fixed exchange rates with everyone else who has the same standard of value. That basic idea is still popular um, today, and that's all a real gold standard really is. You just tie your currency to the value of gold. Finally, Nathan Lewis, let's talk about what people can do to protect their own money. A lot of people are extraordinarily concerned, and they don't know where to turn right yes. now. First of all, you know, I, my prognostications of the future are probably no better than anyone else's, <laughs> which means you know everyone's wrong a lot of the time. It's very hard to say exactly what's going to happen in the next year or five years or ten years. To, for Americans especially, I would emphasize that we live in a floating fiat currency environment. The value of the currency is not stable. The value of the currency, our currency, the dollar, has declined by my estimate probably you know 50 times. It's worth 150th of what it was worth in the past, in the 60s. We may be entering, we have entered, uh, it's already happening, another period where the currency seems to be declining in value. You know, the whole idea that, uh, you know, government bonds are the risk-free asset because, you know, it's not going to default. But if the currency, those bonds are denominated and goes down 10 times like it did in the 1970s, it's not going to be worth very much anymore, right? It's going to be worth only 10 cents. I would suggest having some portion of your portfolio of assets as something that is going to be, um, is not necessarily going to prosper, but it's going to be uh, appropriate for those kind of periods. Uh, gold is the most... It's kind of the classic liquid uh, investable asset. Uh, property can do well. Um, stocks are a real asset, you know, that's buildings and, and factories and so forth. But during inflationary periods like the 1970s, stocks tend to do very badly. The, the valuations tend to get go very low. And so they don't tend to be a very good performing asset in inflationary period, unless things get really nasty, in which case they can become sort of hard asset refuge. I basically preach diversification. And, and you can, if you just think about this as, a, as an investor, if the value of the dollar, let's just say, was fell to half or a quarter or a tenth of where it is today, what kind of portfolio would I want to hold, right? Mm -hmm. What would the effect be on, on, on various assets? Just think about it and then place your bets accordingly. Nathan, if people would like to follow your work online or get a copy of your new book, Inflation, how could they do that? Uh, the book is out. I think it's released today. It's in places like Barnes and Noble and uh, Amazon and all the usual channels. Uh, Encounter Books has has a website for the book with a little more information on it. Uh, my personal website is newworldeconomics.com, and that's my macro website. It's it's not about investing stuff, but you know economic topics. And I also have a, a retail investment newsletter, uh, which is on Substack, the Polaris Letter, uh, and Substack.com. What, uh, what I'm doing with my money and, and what I suggest maybe other people do as well. Nathan Lewis, thank you for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast 
by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time. Thank you.